You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Today, we are very fortunate to have Regina Smith join us uh, for the lecture. She's professor of political science at Indiana University. And uh, like others in the room, I've known Regina for many years and learned a lot from her uh, work. She studies state-society relations, uh, the dynamics of political contention and uh, mobilization, uh, the effects of public policy in um, of semi-authoritarian, uh, transitional regimes, electoral authoritarian, competitive hybrid, competitive authoritarian, there's been called many different things, but we know what kind of regimes we're talking about. Uh, particularly focused on Russia, but of course she's also done a lot of work on Ukraine. Uh, she's been funded by the National Science Foundation, IREX, National Council for, I'm going to get this right, Eurasian, East European, and uh, Russian research, there's just no Russian there, just Eurasian, East European. Uh, Smith Richardson Foundation, uh, so she's received uh, funding for her uh, empirical, many ambitious empirical data collection projects, uh, particularly in Russia, but also in Ukraine. She's published in a wide range of academic journals. Uh, for example, recently in a special issue of Russian politics, uh, her book, Elections, Protests, and Authoritarian Regime Stability, Russia 2008-2020, through 2020, uh, which was published in 2020, uh, demonstrates the power of controlled elections to alter autocratic regimes. So it's a big topic of interest these days as uh, authoritarian regimes continue to have elections and countries that have elections continue to become more authoritarian. <laughs> uh, her new book is entitled Varieties of Russian Activism, State Society Contestation in Everyday Life, and that she's editing with Jeremy Mortis and Andrei Semyonov, and it's forthcoming in, in 2022, so keep an eye out for that one. Okay, well, her title for today, as you can probably see up there, yes, is Social Policy and Societal Change in Moscow, the Moscow Housing renovation program. So please join me in giving a warm welcome to you. So I can't claim full credit for this talk. I work with the dream team of interdisciplinary scholars. Uh, Ekaterina Borisova, me, and Alexei Sakharov have been working on this paper on the evolution of pro-social norms in Russia. Our uh, other co-author is Israel Marquez, who's a political scientist at HSE. And this is a really multifaceted project. This is one paper from the project. We hope it will be a series of papers and then a book that's uh, just beginning to be in work. The question for today is uh, taps into a literature on the interrelationship between state policy or institutions and the formation of pro-social norms sometimes also referred to as social capital. If you're an economist, you call it social norms, and if you're a cousin, you call it social capital. Um, and, and so that's the question that this talk addresses. We're also interested in whether there are spillover effects that norms forge in response to one policy that influence other policies, and is this change durable or short-lived? 
So um, this talk proceeds uh, in the usual steps, uh, starting with uh, the theory, which is uh, drawn from a bunch of different disciplines, the background of the Moscow Housing Renovation Program that I'll talk about, the research design, which is really important for this work, uh, and then the analysis, which I'll present in as few slides and with as few giant regression tables as possible, uh, and then our core findings and next steps in the project. So the work starts, the theory starts in the dismal outcomes of the relationship between low levels of social capital or pro-social norms and poor outcomes like bad governance and low economic development. And the economists here have cited long-term sort of path-dependent trajectories that trap countries in low, uh, poor equilibrium pathways that they can't get out of. And this is part of why in the contemporary world, uh, economics is known as the dismal science, because the, the findings are really quite overwhelming. But those of us who work in political science recognize that a debate emerged around Robert Putnam's work about uh, pro-sociality and uh, the development of social capital. And Putnam opined or argued that norms within a country would shape institutions that could subsequently shape norms. So that a cycle would happen over a long period of time. And of course, Putnam was uh, accused of being um, sort of circular in the raising. Norms produce norms with institutions as intervening. Boo Rothstein, writing about the miracle of Scandinavia, was much more optimistic about the fact that particular types of institutions, and in particular institutions that were embedded with universalist policies that were fair and created equity, could quickly change norms, which is why he argued you see such high levels of pro-sociality in Scandinavian countries. And my mentor, Eleanor Ostrom, uh, was very positive about pro-sociality emerging under the conditions of bottom-up agreements in, in certain contexts. Uh, Lynn argued that it wasn't so much the institutions, but the nature of the interactions that the institutions produced that would create new norms or allow new norms to take root. And this sort of very positive message about what pro-sociology could do for politics and economics led to a lot of investment uh, in research First, in terms of game theory and experiments, where people saw a lot more cooperation than they ever thought would emerge. And uh, particularly under period, uh, conditions where there was reciprocity, information communication, and transparency, fairness, and uh, self-motivated punishment regimes that these folks really uh, saw the possibility for norms to change more quickly than we had thought in the past. This kind of study led the World Bank and other banking institutions to actively engage in designing policies that could change norms. And what that did was produce a, a growing literature um, of policy experiments, field experiments, 
where uh, political scientists got the data from these uh, interventions by the bank, and they would compare people who had been treated or received the benefits from the bank and those who hadn't been treated um, to see if there were changes in norms. By and large, these findings don't support the, the sort of experimental findings. So the field experiments haven't produced overwhelming evidence that policy or institutional intervention can change the course of development. Um, there have been a couple of effects. Krishna writing about India and Ostrom writing from all of the common pool resource literature say that when the institutions come truly from below, when they reflect social demands, they're more likely to produce out good outcomes, positive outcomes, and they've been able to show that. But there are very, very few successful findings here. The one really interesting thing, and we were just talking about that, is that um, when women are engaged, they, things seem to go a little better. So when women are working with men in this context, there's more pro-sociality or new norms that emerge. Now, these findings uh, from the field studies uh, occur regardless of mechanism. So people have posited a lot of different ways in which institutions might produce pro-social behavior. The, the extension of social networks and further than a recognized the social capital language. Uh, inclusivity or universalism, transparency and these bottom-up punishment regimes, none of them have produced good results in the field. So uh, there's another alternative. Uh, so they see collective action, but that collective action isn't attributed to the norm change. So why might we see collective action with uh, without changes in norms, well, Mansur Olson told us small groups find it easier to cooperate for various rational actor regions, reasons, higher marginal benefits, lower transaction costs. And so policy in interventions, uh, some of these experiments by the bank, trying to do these things and intervene in collective action by changing marginal costs or increasing benefits. Um, and here, there is some direct effect, right? They find a Mansur Olson small group effect by messing with marginal cost and benefits. So um, hold on to that for a second, I'll come back to it. The dilemma then is, is uh, collective action, pro-social behavior, a function of material benefits, a rational action, or an increase in pro-social norms and cultural shift? And can we make an argument about that? And then finally, do we see the kind of spillovers uh, that were predicted from the experimental work? So in our case, to just foreshadow, is engagement um, in the Moscow housing policy renovation, does that create more engagement in pension reform? So is there a spillover from one policy arena to the other? Okay, so the case we want to look at is Moscow Housing. This is a, a really fascinating program where about 
20% of all that housing in Moscow is going to be torn down and reconstructed. Uh, it, it involves just huge numbers of people. And it, it comes at the nexus of sort of the idea of regime support and this argument of tragic brilliance, giving people a reason to vote for the regime, modernizing the city and making daily life more comfortable, thus undermining uh, dissent and so forth. So it comes at the nexus of a lot of literatures on authoritarian governments, contemporary authoritarian governments. It's a fascinating program uh, that's made even more, more interesting <laughs> from its origin, right? So these five-story buildings, I'm sorry about the feeding and how I send that to um, The five-story buildings, the Hrushovka uh, began in 1958 and in 1973. These are, uh, were the first large-scale single-family dwellings built in the Soviet Union after the revolution. Um, and it would, they came out of a design competition in which two types of buildings were built. These that were prefabricated slabs and um, others that were brick design. The interesting thing about these buildings is that they were designed to last 25 years. They were meant to be a stopgap measure and they had a lot of big problems including uh, things like water pipes being embedded in the cement, so if the plumbing <laughs> went, there would be problems. And uh, so there were significant issues, and it was widely agreed at the point that this program was announced that these buildings were in poor shape and something had to be done. Of course, they don't only exist in Moscow, they exist all over the former Soviet space. Um, in East Germany, if you've been on the other side of the wall in Berlin, you see that many of them have been beautifully modernized, right? But the Russian government decided there's no modernizing these buildings, better to tear them down than to rebuild. They're quite romantic, actually, these buildings. If you're interested in this stuff, Belyayla. Uh, now, Sigda Valiyayva uh, Forever is a beautiful story of how these buildings changed people's lives and became a hotbed of art and culture, of dissent. The origins of Nancy Reese's work on Kitchen Talk emerges from the, the privatization of these apartments. And uh, uh, Shostakovich wrote uh, an operetta and then a film about these buildings. So it was a real culture shift. It was a real uh, romanticization of the system. Um, I can talk a little bit more about that later if, if you're interested. It'll be part of the book. It's not part of the political science. So in early 2017, in one of these weekly televised meetings, Sobyanin sat across from Putin and said, okay, I'd like to renovate this housing. It's time to build it down. This is what the people want. They petitioned. He gave Putin statistics about the demands for housing change. Uh, Putin himself looked at Sobyanin and said, you know what the people want. Let's do it. And the big thing here was that both Putin and Sibyanin were up for re-election the next year, and Moscow was going to be a problem, right? Uh, there's very interesting writing that 
out of the Moscow mayoralty selling this program as, as an electoral project so to try to sell it um, and I'll come back to that in a sec the project was uh, imposed from above but truly in response to social demands housing was a key component of the social contract polls showed uh, ongoing demands for renovation of Soviet era housing, for quality Soviet era, era housing. And there was uh, close studies of these houses showed a lot of popular demand for the government to solve these problems, eschewing the public of the responsibility for doing it. So there was true social demand. Nonetheless, there were these uh, five-story houses were in very different shape. So some of them looked like this from the bottom <laughs> when they were truly in bad shape. Others were in beautiful neighborhoods with lots of green space, which was really highly valued by the residents. And some, especially the brick class buildings, were coveted as places to privatize and buy for uh, low middle income people. So they were comfortable and they didn't have the same problems as the flat building. So immediately there was a diverse set of opinions about the response to this policy. In the first round of the, the um, reconstruction, which was called uh, demolition by the opponents, right? So, uh, the mayoralty designated 8,000 buildings that were eligible for the first round of uh, inclusion. Of that, they were going to select a set for the first round, about half. They conducted a phone survey of 400 to 600,000 apartments. Uh, that means all that could have been included in these buildings, but also other Moscovites to gauge uh, opposition. And they asked four questions, one about ownership, one about program support, and two about expectations, what they thought the benefits and the problems might be. That was, that, those were the four questions. But there was actually no transparency of who was included and who was excluded. And um, we've done some analysis of inclusion and exclusion, and it looks like it was some combination of what the developers wanted, who was going to get the vote support, and where there were the best benefits and the lowest opposition. The outcome of that contemplation, so this is all happening within two months, March, April, into May of 2017. City officials announced 4,566 buildings for inclusion in the project. Uh, that number increased after the voting round because some buildings petitioned to be included. They appealed to BBP to include them into the program, and he uh, created a process by which they could be included. And it increased even further in the construction stage as developers uh, captured nearby buildings or included them in the program in order to make some money or, and uh, capitalize on fixed costs. Right. 
So you can see these buildings were spread all across the city, constrained by where they actually were built, of course, but, but really broadly uh, spread across the city. This produced three types of uh, social responses. Residents who supported the program, and they mostly lobbied inside the house to get others to agree with them to support the program. Residents who supported, but with reservations. And these were the people faced with a very vague law and a lot of uncertainty about where they would be moved and what they would get and what their social protections and legal protections were wanted to revise the policy. And they became quite active in the policy uh, revision process. One of the big issues was parking, because if you, you know, spent a lot of time in Moscow, the courtyard, the green space is where people park. And losing that in the center of the city was losing a huge park. And so they wanted parking protection. Um, and these people uh, engaged in visible organized action, quite a lot of it and also neighborly outreach. And then finally, there were residents who were very happy with their homes, who were also engaged in both strategies. The, I would say the smallest group were those who opposed. They were mostly in the brick buildings. There were lots of people who felt that it was, was their only chance to get a new apartment, and they, needed a, they wanted and needed a new apartment. They couldn't afford renovation themselves, and so they supported the program sort of unquestionably. There were lots of rumors that if you went easily, you would get a better place, right? <laughs> so there were benefits from, from agitating it inside the building, but not outside. The essential um, piece of this project is that uh, the law itself required consultation. That is, houses included in a program had to vote to, to confirm that. And they had to vote, two-thirds of residents had to support inclusion in the program to be included. You can imagine that this created a lot of conflict within buildings. So we did see quite a bit of social, bottom-up social sanctioning happening in these buildings. And in her brilliant and very lovely to read dissertation, Anna Jelena, uh, uses a lot of interview work to illustrate these changes. I just saw that dissertation was published if you're interested in this kind of stuff. Um, it started out in the beginning that there was no turnout requirement. That is, there was a turnout requirement, and but they dropped the turnout requirement because people were more likely to be opposed but not show up than be opposed and vote no, right? Because of social sanctions. Um, this is a period in which the Moscow Mayor's Office is developing these uh, blockchain voting systems, these unprotected blockchain voting systems, and they use blockchain voting for this vote, uh, and there's strong uh, belief that it was um, manipulated. So it was a long period of creating policy formation with implementation. There was consultation at every stage in formulating the bill. There was discussions with neighbors, and there are, there are countless pictures like this on the web of these informal uh, neighborly meetings. House meetings, that is just sort of HOA meetings within the house. 
visits by local deputies and bureaucrats. The Moscow Architect's Office was really heavily involved in selling the project. There were legislative committee meetings where people were invited to come and be part of the audience. Um, there were lots of petitions. There were frequent protests at both the city level and the Ryan or the neighborhood level. And there were court cases demanding protections. And court cases became a tool of protest because they would bring the case and then it would be publicized on the local Ryan activist website and people were invited to come and observe the case and then spread the news. So how do we bring the data in this case together? There are some aspects of this policy that suggest that it wouldn't be a source of pro-sociality, and those are the things we understand. It was a top-down imposition, even though it was a response to demands. Uh, there was a lot of uncertainty about what the, the benefit, but also the nature of the provider, the Moscow government. And, um, Sasha de Vogel has a new paper out that talks about how there's a lot of reneging on these kinds of promises. Um, and then a lack of policy, transparency in government. And all of those things would expect us to think that there wouldn't be pro-social uh, norms that come from this process. But there are other factors that suggest we could see them. This required interaction and consultation uh, vote to secure benefits and opportunity to influence the nature of the laws. Uh, house level focus provided a lot of common knowledge. We have some good uh, focus group data that says people knew what their voters, what their neighbors wanted and interacted with them quite frequently around that. Uh, repeated interactions through the process, so it took several steps uh, to get there. And there was a lot of capacity for bottom-up sanctioning for people who weren't voting with the majority. So, so there are some, uh, and also the size of the benefit was so large, relative to other things. Okay, so um, I have to delve into research design here because you'll only believe me if I can convince you of two things. One is that our sample uh, it's, it's fairly similar of between those who were in houses that voted or were included and those who were not, that there aren't confounding variables in our sample. And the other thing I have to convince you of is that the Moscow minority didn't pick houses because they had higher low social capital, that is, it wasn't endogenous. So we have a lot of data. It turns out that there's tremendous amount of data about housing in Moscow City. And we have all a large data set on every building in Moscow now, um, which is amazing. And it describes the quality of the house. It describes the socioeconomic conditions of the residents. You'll see it in a minute. It's quite remarkable. And also uh, neighborhood characteristics, how far the house is from the metro, how many of Cheka are in the neighborhood, and so forth and so on. And also, we used Ryan-level voting data uh, to make sure that we were controlling for the political preferences as best as we could of people in the houses. On the individual level, we also did a survey field experiment, just a compare and comparison of houses included and houses excluded. 
we did a random sample of people who lived in houses across Moscow, just a random sample of Moscow, so that we could get a sense of that. We did some really fun focus groups with great discussion. Um, uh, we did social mobilization data. We've been tracking all of the all of the events that groups, all of the groups that formed and the events they held around the policy. And we're just now organizing to do interviews with activists. So it's pretty rich reinforcing data. As Ted said, I like the big data projects. So we uh, did a match pair strategy of selecting two groups of buildings from the 1510 and 1511 design series. So these were the winning design series. This is really a fascinating rabbit hole to go down. Um, it developed in 1958. The first group of respondents were those who were on the list and voted. Uh, to be included or not included. The second group were not on the list and did not vote. The survey was conducted by Levada face-to-face. -face. They stood outside in front of the buildings and asked people if they lived there. Uh, so it was pretty expensive. Um, and the final sample was uh, 1,308 respondents drawn from 40 pairs of match buildings. So, uh, 80 buildings. We also had this wonderful happy accident where um, we first formulated our list in, at the time of the voting, and then our survey was done a little bit later. But in the meantime, some of our groups who were not included had petitioned to be included. Right, so these are people who had a lot of pro-social uh, norms because they got themselves sort of included informally. They, they're not really a great sample comparison, but they do have the highest level of norm uh, emergence from this project of um, all the other groups. Okay, so here's what we did. When we chose these 40 pairs, we matched on all of these factors. So if you, what all this is, is is saying this is the average of included and not included buildings, and this is the p-test, and you can see that all, none of them are statistically different, except for this variable uh, unassigned land, which I'll, I'll talk about in a second. But essentially we are just picking the same population from the included and non-included buildings. And this is all Moscow City data. So this is incredible data. Here's another round of individual data. Um, we mapped on gender, age, higher education. And here too, except for the years lived in the building, how long have you lived in the building, we have no statistically significant difference between the two samples. And we're okay with years lived in the building because while it's statistically different, substantively it's not very different, right? So whether you've lived there 27 years or 28.5 years probably isn't shaping your social capital uh, endowments yet. Uh, let me just point out a couple of things. We use this measure of wood window frames as a measure of whether or not the building had been renovated, right? Because if buildings are renovated, you get uh, plastic. So we 
feel pretty confident, and I hope you do too, that we've mapped the samples. We've taken away confounding uh, factors in the samples. Now I want to convince you that the city didn't try to, uh, to pick on social capital. One point of evidence I have is the four-question survey, which was not at all worried about ties between neighbors. But um, another couple of factors are larger houses, which we predict have lower uh, pro-sociality, were more likely to be included. Right? So it goes against our predictions. Houses with state-run management, as opposed to private management, the building manages itself, were more likely to be included. And that's interesting, because it takes a lot of wherewithal to have to organize an HOA. And the same with the unassigned land. It takes a lot to privatize the land underneath, and the default is non-assigned land. So that's, these are the things that I'm trying to, to use signifiers to say the state didn't cook the books. So I'll go into the analysis, unless anybody has questions. Yeah? Could you just remind us what is the outcome? What's the dependent variable? The dependent variable is pro-sociality and the spillover of pro-social. I'm going to tell you exactly how we measure it here. That's exactly where I'm going. Uh, so ours is a survey-based study. Um, we asked a lot of questions about social capital, and we put them all into a hopper and did a factor analysis. And we came up with uh, two distinct factors. Uh, this sort of general or generic social capital index, these questions should be very familiar to people, uh, was uh, the first uh, factor. And the second factor had to do with the upkeep of the building, right? This idea that you're investing in the collective space, renovation and cleaning, community watch, and so on. So when we go to do, these are these indices are themselves dependent variables, but we also tested each component of the indice to look at what was happening. And then our key variable of interest, our intermediary variable, is whether or not they were engaged in the policy-specific interactions that were mandated by the program. So whether or not they signed a petition, took part in a rally, discussed social events, and so forth. So to what extent did they engage in interactions specifically mandated by the policy? And what we find is that within included and excluded buildings, um, every component of the policy-specific interactions, including do nothing, right? So do nothing is always an option. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's against, it goes against the loadings on all the other factors. But, um, and lots of people did nothing. Lots of people spurred the program, they did nothing. Um, but, the, but all of these factors, if you compare those who were treated, lived in the building, or didn't live in the building, are significant. Right? So even the experimental design, that should convince you that something different is happening in these two buildings, two types of buildings.
And if you look at the generic norms, you see that some of them are not statistically different. On a whole, the, the index is different across the two buildings, but only the can rely on neighbors and watched over the neighbor apartment were significant here. Now, that doesn't seem like an amazing finding, but in Russia, that's quite a unique finding. We don't usually find this kind of generic social capital within buildings in the limited studies that are out there. So it's suggesting that those interactions that were very significant are spilling over into different kinds of neighborly relations. The same with the uh, upkeep variables. Uh, only two of them are significantly different, but as a whole, the index is significantly different. What we really wanted to know, so that suggests to us, given the design, that we're seeing a spillover effect. We're seeing something that people haven't observed in these World Bank studies, that the interaction from the policy created some new co-social norms. So the question is, can we prove, in this new world of causal inference, whether that runs or is mediated by the policy interactions, or we're in the Mansur-Olson world where it goes straight uh, to something that looks like uh, generic social capital and uh, investment, but it's really just um, rationality, right? It's really just, it makes sense for me to get engaged in this. We use the Amai Kiel and Yamamoto uh, mediation package which is a really interesting little statistical package that lets you uh, estimate the relationship between uh, the policy and the, the interaction effects and then the interaction and your outcomes, generic social capital spillover. And we find for both pro-social norms and health-specific effects, those interactions are significant at 95% confidence. The direct effects, that line that goes just from the policy to those changes in norms, is zero. So this is what the, you would want to find using this tool. And uh, the results show up to the proscribed robustness. So this is a sort of second way, or second way that we can show that it's actually these policy interactions that are making changes that neighbors are more familiar with themselves and that they're more engaged with each other. We also run a series of regressions, and here I'm only gonna pick out the um, significant variables and the interesting non-significant variables to explain the individual model. What types of individuals are engaging? So inclusion and voting in the program is always positive and significant to any specification. So having to vote is significant. Years lived in the building is positive and significant at the margin of inclusion, right? So this looks more like an attachment to place theory than uh, the endogeneity problem. 
to us. You may disagree. Age increases participation in both uh, policy uh, interactions and also, but not general or health specific accumulation. So this is a kind of lower middle age process, right? And apartment size, whether or not you've renovated your apartment, is a significant predictor of pro-sociality. So there's a property rights story here too. There's an investment story that uh, emerges from the individual data. Surprisingly, retirement, well maybe not, at second thought, retirement decreases policy-based participation, but not accumulation. So lots of retirees don't participate in these policy actions, but if they do, they accumulate. Uh, men are less likely to participate and accumulate, so here we're confirming what we found, what they found in the African case. Uh, Residents in unrenovated apartments were less likely to participate. Here's an economic rationality story. Um, and state employees, so here's the idea. Are, there, are people dependent on the state afraid to participate in contests? They, the variable was positive but not significant. So at least in this case, Bujetniki, so this is, I shouldn't call it state employees, it's really a Bujetniki variable. Uh, were not more deterred controlling for all these other factors. So they actually did participate in contesting and demanding uh, protections from the policy. So we conclude that policy interactions do influence the accumulation of other types of pro-social norms. That they also made more, uh, residents more likely to vote against the program. So interacting with your neighbors actually pushed you away. Uh, from participating, and there's some evidence from that in the focus groups, right? Because you could say the causal direction could run either way, but the focus groups show pretty clearly that people change their mind after talking to their neighbors. Um, again, most in need, least likely to participate. Matt Rolson's right, the bigger the building interacting with the vote, the less accumulation of pro-social norms. So the building size really didn't matter here. Privatized land and state management had no consistent effect on the accumulation of norms. Although interestingly, uh, privatized land, people who had privatized the land were more likely to upkeep their houses, right? So there's again a property rights effect there, or property story. So pension reform happened after this vote and after this process, and residents in buildings that voted were more likely to participate in actions around protests around pension reform. So we do see a little bit of a spillover there. And participation in pension reform had its own carry-on effect into other types of social capital. So it was almost like a cycle had been kicked off. Okay. I just wanted to give you a little bit of the focus group. I know this is really small, but um, it was really fun. And one of the places that we see uh, an effect consistent with the mechanisms are networks. So people were finally meeting people in their building and extending their networks and talking with them as a result of this program. And this was quite a common statement 
Some people reconnecting because families have lived in these houses for generations were reconnecting with their high school friends and had reforged social ties. So there was a real uh, extension of networks um, and exchange of information and ideas that were happening. Um, and and she, she's actually talking about, uh, you know, I'm acquainted with my neighbors, but then I went beyond. We also saw a lot of this kind of information uh, about how transparent it was in the houses and how information was being shared. So this woman's elderly uncle came to talk to her and he couldn't understand it. It was a very complicated policy. And he, uh, he came to ask her what was happening. She, look where she gets her information from. So Navalny's team was very involved in advertising and agitating here, providing information. So she shows them clips from Navalny. Um, and then they went through the house and talked to people, and they realized that all their neighbors were opposed, and they themselves became opposed to moving, that, and, and, and became in charge of agitating for a better policy, more certainty. And a lot of what we saw at the very end was, you know, we never thought we could get changes from the city government, but who knew they listened to us and they gave us something better, right? So I think the big question, and this is where I'll end, uh, we're in a place now where some of these buildings have been torn down. These are the new construction. Anybody who's on Facebook in Moscow sees a whole bunch of horrific pictures of people being moved into buildings without windows, of water coming down the side and frozen because the plumbing isn't working correctly. There are all sorts of problems. Buildings are higher than we're supposed to be mandated by law. Infill is more extensive than what's supposed to be managed. Green space is more limited. Um, there was a big series of protests because up on Vernonsky Project out by the university, by eminent domain, domains, uh, a bunch of uh, developers just took those buildings and started to tear them down. And so our goal now is to do a second round and to look at how the shock of moving changes attitudes across the board. So not only the, the people who weren't included in the first round if they were opposed, the people who haven't moved yet and how they're feeling, and then the people who are moved. So that's where we are in the project. 